Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode number three. And this week I actually have a theme. The theme is going to be television pilots and more specifically, some of the weird pilot experiences that take place. The first part is going to be a a bizarre story about my partner and myself, and then the second half is going to be a completely surreal pilot story. So let's get started. Uh, This takes place in 1977. My partner and I, David Isaacs, at the time were the head writers of MASH, and we certainly had an awful lot to do, but chance to get a pilot and get your own series on the air, and it was also a lot of money, um, we took it. And here's the situation. There was a producer named Alan Carr at the time. Now, Alan Carr was originally a talent manager. He managed Rosalind Russell and Paul Anka, and then he got into producing movies, and he did Saturday Night Fever, which was a hit, And uh, he made an awful lot of money with a cannibal movie (laughs) called Survive. But his big home run was when he produced the movie Grease. So anyway, this guy is now an A-list Hollywood player. And CBS makes a commitment with him to do a situation comedy. He was a very, let's just say... Colorful, flamboyant character. He was very cherubic-looking. He was short, uh, kind of a chipmunk face. Kind of reminds you of Louis Anderson or uh, I guess the best example would be Ellen in a fat suit. But anyway, he was about 40. And he had this idea for a show called The Music Booker. Now, at the time, again, this was 1977, there was a late-night show on NBC called The Midnight Special, and it was basically a rock concert show, kind of a variety show in a sense, but it would be uh, Alice Cooper and David Bowie and Helen Reddy instead of Andy Williams and the Beach Boys. Also, Wolfman Jack was the host of this show. So uh, the idea that Alan Carr had was kind of a behind-the-scenes of a show like the Midnight Special, and it would be centered on the girl who would book all of the music acts, hence the name Music Booker. 
And it would be sort of like the Mary Tyler Moore show meets Soul Train for white kids. Well, we thought this was kind of a good idea, and it was already pre-sold, so we didn't have to pitch it or anything. So we made an appointment to meet with Alan Carr up at his home. Now, he lived up in Benedict Canyon in what he called the Hill Haven Lodge. This was a mansion that had been around for a number of decades. Ingrid Bergman once owned the house. I think James Kahn owned it at one time. And it was very easy to find when you were going up winding Benedict Canyon because it was the only home that had a giant Oscar on the front lawn, which for Hollywood is kind of their version of a garden gnome or a lawn jockey. In any event, we could only take these meetings at the end of the day because we were working on MASH, so we would book like a 6 o'clock meeting. We get there, and he's a little bit late. At the moment, he was in the middle of producing Grease 2, which would be sort of the beginning of his downfall. Oh, another thing about Alan Carr. Alan Carr, in 1989, for one year and one year only, produced the Oscar cast. And it is legendary in that it is the single worst Academy Award show ever. That was the show with these garish, lavish production numbers, and it was highlighted or really low-lighted by a, uh, a singing duet between Snow White and Rob Lowe. Go to YouTube and check this thing out. I'm telling you, it is jaw-dropping. Alan Carr was the producer of that show. Anyway, uh, we go up to his house. Uh, One addition that Alan Carr made to the Hillhaven Lodge was to add a King Tut disco in the basement. Because back in those days, disco music and dead Egyptian pharaohs were very much in vogue. We were never invited to attend any parties at the King Tut Disco Bar. Though it was only for the A-list people, we were pretty much the the C-list people. The A-list people for Alan Carr meant old Hollywood, new Hollywood, and pool boys in the neighborhood. So we're sitting in his garish living room, and he comes sweeping in about a half an hour late, and he was wearing a black T-shirt and jeans, which is kind of the standard producer's costume, I guess, and and he went over the idea for the show. We liked it. We said, okay, we'll put together an outline for you. And he said, if you guys want to do some research, there's the Don Kirshner Rock Awards taking place next Tuesday. Let me get you a couple of tickets. Now, the Don Kirshner Rock Awards was a made-up MTV type, uh, I mean, there's so many of these music award shows, the American Music Awards, you know, there's like 15 of these things. And at uh, that time, in the late 70s, Don Kirshner, who was a very big producer, had his own rock award show. And it was broadcast live on ABC. I mean, this was a big deal for the time. And it was going to take place at the Hollywood Palladium, which was a old Art Deco 
uh, mainstay auditorium in Hollywood in the uh, 30s and 40s. That's where all the big bands played. It's still there. It's still around. Um, but um, we were very excited. Our chance to go to the Don Kirshner Rock Awards. The only problem was that uh, it was black tie, which meant that uh, David and I had to go and uh, rent tuxedos. So we go to a tuxedo rental place, and we're looking at the black tuxedos, and the guy says, well, what is this occasion for? We said, the Don Kirshner Rock Awards. And he said, oh, you guys idiots. You can't go to the Rock Awards just wearing a standard black tuxedo. You guys out of your minds? You got to look more hip. And I thought, yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, I'd hate to bump into Helen Reddy and have her think I was not happening. So uh, he showed us what was the thing, according to him, the happening look. And, of course, we went for it and rented those tuxedos. So now comes the day of the Rock Award show, and uh, we had to be in the auditorium at 4 o'clock because it was broadcast live to the East Coast at uh, 5. It was 8 o'clock on the East, so 5 o'clock in the West, and then it was going to be taped delayed, played back here. You know, these were before the days of uh, Twitter when uh, when people could, you know, spoil who won the award, whether Peter Frampton won four awards or, or five, whether Peter Frampton even knew what the hell it was. So anyway, um, we go to pick up our dates at about three in the afternoon, and they both fall over laughing. They can't believe it. We had rented brown tuxedos with peach ruffled shirts and, of course, brown bow ties. Well, we looked like the two biggest idiots on the planet. And seriously, the entire drive across the city to Hollywood, our dates were laughing hysterically. So we get to the Rock Awards and our name is on a list, and we get our house seats, and we're walking down and looking around, and everybody is dressed in black tuxedos. <laughs> We're the only two guys wearing brown tuxedos and the peach ruffled shirts. We're a very nice compliment, but uh, we're the only two wearing those. So we sit down, we take our seats, and we're seeing a lot of rock stars who are kind of milling about and taking their seats. And at one point from the stage, um, they called out over the PA system, Shaka Khan, is Shaka Khan here? And I don't know why I did it, but uh, I raised my hand. (laughs) And I said, yeah, over here. And uh, this African-American woman in the row right in front of me whirls around and goes, hey, fuckhead, I'm Shaka Khan. So that was sort of the extent of our mingling with these rock stars. The show ends. It's now pretty much 8 o'clock West Coast time. And we're in Hollywood. And our dates are dressed nicely, you know, in elegant prom dresses. And uh, we look like two brown penguins. And we figure, well, where are we going to go to dinner? 
where could you possibly go wearing outfits like this? At the time, there was a restaurant in Los Angeles called Kelbo's. And anybody who has spent any time in L.A. knows exactly what I'm talking about. Kelbo's had a Polynesian theme. It was sort of like Trader Vic's, but for Homer Simpson. It was way tacky. And the drinks were served with flames coming out of them. And the drinks were in skulls, that sort of thing. There were tiki's all over the place, palm fronds and uh, volcanoes going off in the corner, that, that sort of thing. We figured, hey, let's go to Kelbo's. At the time, Kelbo's was right across the street of CBS on Beverly Boulevard, right across the street of Television City. And it was on our way home. So we barreled down to Kelbo's, and we walk in, prepared to, again, apologize and say, please give us a table in the back corner where no one can see us. And the hostess looks at us and doesn't even bat an eye. <laughs> we were not the tackiest dressed people in Kelbo's that night. So we had dinner at Kelbo's. It was a lovely evening. We put together our outline for the show. And again, we could only meet after 6 o'clock, and actually so could he, because he was on the set of Grease 2, watching that masterpiece get made. So we set a date, and at 6 o'clock, again, we bomb on over to the Hillhaven Lodge in Benedict Canyon, and when we arrive, Alan Carr's not there yet, and a butler, very formal butler with the, the jacket, not a brown tuxedo jacket, though, although that would have been nice, white gloves, whole number, says that Mr. Carr is running a little bit late, but we were invited to have a glass of wine out on the patio. So he ushers us out to the patio, which was very lovely. And there's a nice bottle of wine and a couple of glasses and a giant ice mountain that is just filled with seafood, with chunks of lobster and crab and shrimp. Chasen's, a very popular restaurant at the time, really more popular in the 40s and 50s, but... They used to make these appetizers, these ice mountains, and they probably cost about two, three hundred dollars in 1977. These were expensive. So, uh, so David and I uh, munch on the lobster. We finish the bottle of wine. It's now seven o'clock. It's the summer, so it's still light, and we're getting a little bummed. We're getting a little punchy. And I remember there was a ceramic flamingo who was sitting on the patio. And we were wondering whether or not we could steal it, whether or not Alan Carr would notice that the flamingo was gone and how exactly could we pull this off. I said, can you just imagine, because we each had little attache cases, can you imagine an attache case with two uh, giant flamingo legs sticking out of it? So we were laughing about this and having a good old time, and we were very punchy. And finally, we hear, 
hello, hello, I'll be there in a second. So we, of course, try to compose ourselves, get our game faces on, and Alan Carr sweeps onto the patio. He is wearing nothing but a flowing white caftan and a pound of cold cream on his face. And he sits down and says hello and says, okay, let's go over the outline. As if there is nothing at all unusual about this scene. So here we are, if you can picture it, and we can't look at each other. We can't, and, and behind Alan Carr is the flamingo. So that didn't, didn't help either. Uh, we were, were biting our lips just desperately trying not to fall over the floor laughing. So can you imagine the scene with like like two guys uh, pitching out their outline and getting notes and asking questions and going back and forth with the producer? And the producer has Crisco all over his face and is wearing a dress. We somehow manage to get through the entire story conference we walk outside, and the minute the door is closed, we roll around on the grass uh, in front of the Oscar, laughing hysterically. So we do the pilot, and the pilot doesn't get picked up. And part of the reason why is that CBS liked the pilot, but they had some notes, so they wanted Alan Carr and us to come in and get the notes, which is... Standard. Well, Alan Carr didn't want to go to CBS. He felt that he was a big enough producer that CBS should come to him. Well, that's just not going to happen in a million years. So CBS said, oh, well, then we'll cancel the project, which they did. And I think the official reason is that Alan Carr wouldn't come in for a meeting. And Alan Carr insists that, well, insisted, he's no longer with us, but he he insisted that a producer of his stature should not have to cater to a lowly television network and go to CBS. I, however, believe the real reason he didn't want to go to CBS because it was across the street of Kelbo's. Okay, that's a crazy pilot story. Coming up next, a surreal one. Keep it here on Hollywood and Levine. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Remember that sound bite? It was from the movie Network from the mid-70s. Pretty famous. I'm mad as hell and I won't take it anymore. Um, That was written by a gentleman named Patty Chayefsky. And Patty Chayefsky, for those who don't know, is really the Babe Ruth of screenwriters. He has won three Academy Awards. In fact, he's the only person to ever win three solo Academy Awards for the best screenplay. He won one for the movie Marty, one for the movie The Hospital, 
and one for network. He writes, well, he wrote, he too has sadly passed away at 58, but he wrote brilliant, brilliant dramas, also just very sharp, satirical pieces, and he's, it's like poetry. Uh, Aaron Sorkin is kind of the poor man's Paddy Chayefsky. This guy, believe me, was a god. And he wrote some great plays. He wrote some sensational movies, also some terrific novels, primarily drama, though. And he was based out of New York. In 1974, for some ungodly reason, he made a deal with NBC to do a sitcom and make a sitcom pilot. But he had never done a sitcom before. He had no idea how to do it. So he enlisted the help of a couple of comedy writers, a team, David Pollock and Elias Davis, and together the three of them put together a situation comedy pilot for NBC. It's a crazy story, and David Pollack is here to share that story. He had come to New York, going to do a situation comedy for NBC. He had uh-huh. the deal all set. It was the star James Coco, who then was uh, you know, pretty popular, writing on the crest of his uh, big success in The Last of the Red Hot Lovers on Broadway. Neil Simon play, right. Right. And um, it was going to be a a half-hour situation comedy. You know, the main thought we had is was was why would Patty Chayefsky, who who had just won an Oscar for uh, (laughs) a hospital and prior to that for Marty, why would he be wanting to get involved in a a half-hour sitcom? But uh, our agent at the time, Bernie Weintraub, he had no patience for any kind of, you know, contemplating and ponderables. He just said, get me a couple of your best situation comedy scripts. And uh, so we selected a Mary Tyler Moore script and uh, and an episode of another series called We'll Get By that was uh, uh, co-created by Alan Alda. We picked those strictly because, if nothing else, they at least were intelligent intelligent shows. <laughs> so it's not the monkeys. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't you didn't the send monkey. him your monkey script, no, right? No, no. And he liked him, huh? Uh, well, we yeah, we got a call from our agent saying that uh, you know the the quote, which you know we we kept copious notes of this because we figured that how, however it turns out, it, it's you know. It's going to be interesting. So we, uh, his his words were fr- filtered through Bernie Weintraub. So they could be a little suspect right there. He was an agent. Uh, uh, his, uh, his the comment was he loves the stuff. So where would you work in his office? Yes. The, what was the, his office the, like? It was, it was a converted uh, efficiency apartment. Wow. So very, very, was his Oscar like very sitting smart. on a table no, somewhere? Nowhere, no. nowhere in sight. So what were the working conditions like? Did the three of you sit around and uh, bat out jokes, or what did uh, you do? No, no, there was no uh, sitting around uh, batting out jokes as such. Uh, but but to the specifics of your question and the mechanics of how it would work. Uh, what we we stayed in his office and we worked on the story 
together and banged out, you know, typically uh, got an, an arc of a story and worked it into scenes. And, uh, and then the plan was each of us would go off to two separate offices and we would write, we would each write a teleplay based on that outline. So, in other words, there would be two separate scripts yes, two, based on the exact same outline. Two, yes, two parallel versions of the exact same narrative. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And uh, and there never was any, you know, in our minds, there never was any, uh, you know, question about which one would be shot. <laughs> uh, which I, one was better? Come on. Which one was you better? Know, I, in I terms of a, of a sitcom, of an actual pilot, if you didn't know the names yeah, attached, yeah. if you read both it, drafts, which one is a better pilot? If you, Ken Levine, read both scripts, if right. you read Patty's script, you would say it's really funny. You know, it, it's, uh, it, it wasn't necessarily in tune with the situation comedy conventions of the day. Right. I mean, that would certainly strike you, but... You, you know the jokes were big. They came. There were no uh, standard punchline rhythms of uh, you know setup joke. They came right out of the. Camp. Now, did you guys have setup joke? Was yours? No, much no, more? no. We no. We we desperately. You know, Patty had told us uh, how uh, you know he believed in in writing. You know non-theatrical characters, you know. And he he liked the dialogue to be exactly the way people talk. He, he he referred to it as dialogue as if it had been wiretapped, you know, mm-hmm. without somebody knowing. Okay, so eventually you have these two scripts. Yeah. Did he merge them at all? Did he use any of your material no. in his script? No. So there's no. nothing of no. your draft... That was actually shot. No, I, I don't. Uh, if there was anything in there, it was a sentence or something. But uh, I, my memory is that that there wasn't. His was very uh, stark and real and rough. Remember this 1974 uh, uh, was still the old sitcom era. I mean, there were some good shows on, but there was. Nothing this realistic. What was he like when you would go to like to lunch, that type of thing? Well, just you know, hanging out with Patty Chayefsky. Yeah. What was that like? Well, you know, I had long sort of uh, prided myself in being able to uh, uh, create distractions in story meetings and bring up pointless observations and just to get off the subject <laughs> and, and just to avoid writing. You know? Right. And uh, writers are, are good at that sometimes. And, and I considered myself really uh, skilled at, uh, you know, saving my fellow writers hours of excruciating <laughs> concentration. <laughs> but um, so, but, you know, I, I we never had to worry about that with Patty. He was just as uh, excited and involved and engaged in distractions as he was in the work. And... Uh, one day, uh, Elias and I were going on and on about how uh, they had. We had always loved Nathan's hot dogs, and at the time, they had just opened up a new, a new uh, Nathan's in the city. It had always been out in Coney Island, mm-hmm. and they'd opened a new one yeah, right Times in Square, right in Forty Third and Broadway. And uh, we were talking about the hot dogs, and uh, you know, this is the dead of colder and heck January, 
and talking about these hot dogs, and suddenly Patty bolted up and put on his coat and said, let's go. Said, let's go. And so uh, Elias and I and Patty, we go marching down 7th Avenue to this Nathan's, <laughs> and we're sitting there eating these hot dogs and cottage fries and washing it down with cream soda. <laughs> and, uh, you know, telling stories, having a great time. I mean, he he, he just put you so at ease. He was just... Uh, one of the guys, yeah, huh? just Yeah, just one of the guys, you know, but very, very literate, you know, loved words. He had a dictionary, uh, you know, about six inches high. Uh, and, he, you know, he would love to look up words to get the exact meaning. Did you maintain a relationship with him after the pilot experience? Uh, no, we exchanged some letters and when he, he reported on how the show had tested it all. And, you know, once we, once we uh, saw his script and we saw how the show was going, we had our doubts, you know. Right. But, but the thing, one thing that kept us going was that, uh, or kept us enthused uh, or optimistic, I guess I should say, is that... Uh, we always figured, well, the network must have known who they were buying. Sure. Well, so how could they expect uh, right. anything different from Patty? And he said, and another great quote of his was, you know, God, do it any way you like to write. You know, personally, I tend to, I tend to think out after about four hours. Uh-huh. <laughs> when it came time to write our script, he found separate offices down on 48th Street, uh, above the old, everything was above something. Uh, <laughs> it's New York, was, yeah. <laughs> so this was above the old Latin, the Latin Quarter nightclub, but which then was in sad shape. You know, it was all chained up. You know, it had been closed down and been turned into an X-rated uh, film uh, movie <laughs> house, and then they had shown uh, you know some ex, you know some uh, graphic well, movies and the so, place so rated it's, it. It's great when you guys would take a break. You just go down and right. you know watch some peep shows. No, but it, it was it was it, bo- it was closed. It oh. closed down. There's cl- you know padlocks. You on should the, talk on, to the writers guild about that. Yeah, yeah. padlocks on the doors. And uh, the the showgirls and uh, were <laughs> they were around. Okay, no, nowhere, nowhere to be seen. And we were in this little uh, dingy office that had a nice view of the, uh, you know, what's the famous songwriter, the Brill Building, mm-hmm. there, you know, ac- across the street. Did he like your draft? Ultimately, what did he say about your draft? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't. There was no discussion of, about it. You know, uh-huh. the, the plan was. Uh, you know that we if the thing went ahead we would we would just uh, we would just be there um if you uh, ever had arguments would he like hold up the uh, ball peen never, hammer no no, no okay no always gracious oh, okay. always pleasant uh always entertaining yeah. david thank you very much sure. for the recollections appreciate sure. it a, a pleasure ken okay hollywood and levine will continue after this Thank you, David Pollack. Wow, that is a crazy-ass story. I mean, it's kind of like if Eugene O'Neill decided to collaborate with the Marx Brothers on something. Anyway, that is going to do it for this edition of Hollywood and Levine. 
My thanks to Adam Butler, to Susie Butler, to Howard Hoffman, and to you guys for listening and subscribing. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do. I've also been asked to ask you for five-star reviews, so I'm shamelessly going to do that. I will see you again next time. You can get off the treadmill. And once again, thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.